Please open your Bibles. We will continue our path. We're in Exodus chapter 18. Please open to Exodus chapter 18. Can everyone hear me all right? Good? Okay. All right, I wasn't sure. All right, so as we've been making this trip, especially as we're going to get, I don't know, as the Lord maybe take us through 18 and 19 tonight or just 18, I don't know how far the Holy Spirit will take us, but we've made quite a journey with Israel, haven't we at this point, the Hebrews? I mean, we've watched them come out of Goshen. We've got God's supernatural redemptive hand just literally took them out supernaturally through the plagues and through everything else, spared them through the Passover. We watched the children, the male children, be spared that way. They then made their way to across the Red Sea. God did that supernaturally parted these waves 10 feet high they make their way through it they go through the Red Sea like that they come on the other the other side of the wilderness ashore is where they come out at they then turn around and say we have nothing to eat and nothing to drink we're going to all die and we need to go back to Egypt right not that we've ever been there huh where we where we're more we have selective memories we look more behind us than we do in front of us and what God is doing rather than what God has already done so they turn around and they they begin to clamor against Moses, and Moses turns around and says, why are you upset with me? Let's talk to God, and they begin to talk to God, and in spite of all their clamoring, in spite of, can you imagine uh, two million people clamoring, you know, all the sound, the rumbling of the earth that must have created, and in spite of all of that, God's just natural character of love, of mercy, of, of a good father that loves to provide for his children. He gives them so much bread, manna, bread from heaven. He, gives them, he brings them into this beautiful area where there's springs and there's water. And then even as they travel on, he brings them to this other place where, where again they come out and they've got just, you know, they hit the rock and there's more water than they could drink. Because our God's a good God. And he provides for his children. And then we see as, as he brings them through that, then all of a sudden we're introduced to the Amalekites, right? And as the Amalekites come up, we see all of a sudden Moses is realizing that as he lifts his staff, as God has commanded him, he starts to see there's victory, right, for Joshua down there. But then he becomes tired, and so what happens? So the boys, her and Aaron, what do they do? They turn around and get a rock and they place it under him, right? And he sits down on the rock, but he's still holding up the, he's tired, right? He's tired. And so what do they do? Her gets on one side, Aaron gets on the other, and they hold up his hands. Maybe eight, ten hours. Can you imagine? Eight to ten hours like that. And God gives them the victory. And they start to realize the power that God has it, that, that not only can God supernaturally bring bread down from heaven, not only can he bring water, but he can give victory in everything. And, and then there's no reason to put God in a small box. They start to see the, just the amazing presence of God before them with the pillar that goes by day and the fire by night. You all with me? That's where we've been on this journey. Now, we're coming to this area of, of Mount Sinai. They're, they're, they're coming from the wilderness. They're going to make it back to Mount Sinai. Why is this so significant? Where did Moses start out at with the presence of God in the burning bush? Mount Sinai. And then he made his journey, and through all that we've just been talking about, and I just introduced and went through that, he's making his way back. There's something very significant and special about that. And as we go into chapter 19, we'll see a little bit more about that. But before he gets there, we have a visit from the in-laws. Now, we all love it when the in-laws visit. Why are you laughing? I wasn't being funny. We all love it when the in-laws visit. <laughs> and I hear the in-laws in here going, amen, amen. <laughs> well, it's interesting because there's gonna, we're going to see something very beautiful here tonight. 
We're going to see the humility and character of a son-in-law. He's going to turn around and he's going to just be so, he's going to have an ear to listen to what dad has to say. You know, think about that, the humility of Moses. He doesn't stop and go, you know what? I've got two million people following me here. I'm the leader, the under-shepherd of two million people. I pastor these guys. I'm sorry, what do you do again? You're, you're a farmer of what? What, you know, how many sheep or how many, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't ever do that, does he? I love that character of Moses. He's humble. He's humble. He's a meek and mild man. One of the most meek and mild men throughout all of Scripture. Hebrews, right? So we read in verse 1, And Jethro, right, Raul is also referred to his name, the priest of Midian. Now, Midianites, we've seen that before. And what, what it, what's, where does that come from? You might remember that Abraham, as we we're reading about Abraham, he had a second wife. Do you remember what her name was? Keturah. Midian came from Keturah, from his second wife. So what does that tell us about the priest of Midian? What is God giving us in this identification or detail here? What he's telling us is this is a follower of God, one that worships the true God, Yahweh, Jehovah that way, okay? That's what we're learning here. Now, now he hasn't seen and had all the revelation Moses has had. Certainly, I, I would concede to that in the scripture, and I think the scriptures would bear witness to that. But he is a worshiper of God, and I do believe that's why Moses does listen to him. He doesn't turn around and rebuke him. Who are you? You're a pagan worshiper. What do you do? No, he's a worshiper of God. So it says, of Midian, Moses' father-in-law heard. It couldn't be hidden. You couldn't not but hear all that, had, that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Everybody was talking about it. Did you hear what happened to the Egyptians, the plagues, the surrounding areas? Everybody had heard about it. So much so that they even heard about what God did to the Amalekites because as they go into this land, as they're making their way to Mount Sinai, because, I mean, really, when you look at it, and we get to chapter 19, and they're in Mount Sinai like that, we will spend the rest of the time with Israel all the way till Numbers, well, let me think about it, uh, the rest of the book of Exodus, they're going to be in Mount Sinai. Uh, Leviticus, they're going to be in Mount Sinai. Numbers chapter 10. It won't be till Numbers chapter 10 that they begin to move from Sinai. They'll be camped out at Sinai for quite a while, right? Listening, learning, receiving God's law. But first, they're going to receive God's covenant. They're going to receive God's covenant first. So it says that is, as God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people that the Lord had brought out of Israel, he'd heard that. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, right? That was his Moses' wife and his children. Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershon, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. That's what his name means in the Hebrew. And the name of the other was Eleazar, right? For he said, the God of my father was my help. In the Hebrew, it also means comfort. God is my help and comfort there. So we see now that as Moses is going out, he's made his way here. He's almost to Mount Sinai. He's making his way like that. Jethro comes to him. He brings his wife. This is the last time that we will hear about Moses' wife, Zipporah. This is the last place we'll see of her in Scripture right here. And it's significant that God put on Moses' heart, right, Jethro like that, to bring these children, to bring the family, to now have this family reunion, right? They're finally together, and they're, and they're going to serve the Lord, and they're going to follow the Lord. I like that. God is about the family, isn't he? God is big on the family, mothers and fathers being together, 
children that way. God is big on the family. He created it. That was his design. And that's why marriage is one man and one woman. Why? So they reproduce, right? They have children, right? If, if the Lord should open the womb that way. That's God's, that's God's plan there. So it says, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Again, his name in the Hebrew. And Jethro, verse 5, Moses' father-in-law came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, I want you to pay attention what we're going to see here in verses 6, 7, and 8. This is what it looks like in humility. This is what a good son-in-law looks like. So, so son-in-laws, if you're in here, pay attention. This is what it looks like from God via scripture, what it's looking like and how we're to respond. What does he do? Does he go out and go, my father-in-law's here. What am I going to do? No, he's going to show great honor. And I've often wondered if, and again, you know, I, some of you laughed when I said the in-laws are visiting. Some of you laughed, and, and we understand sometimes there's sort of this commonality to a worldly joke about the in-laws like that. Who gets wrong with their mother-in-law, their father-in-law, or things like that. You know these things are true, and it's, they're not true biblically, but you know, you know the world has fun with it. I've often wondered that if, if people would approach their in-laws with honor the way that Moses approached his father-in-law, if there would be such contention. I wonder if there would be contention like that. Again, Moses could have said, I, look, I'm, I'm under-shepherding two million people. I'm leading this flock. What could you possibly tell me? But Moses didn't do that, did he? He had an ear to listen. He wanted to hear from the Lord. And he knew that that meant that he was to honor his mother and father. He was to be in obedience that way. There was obedience there. And, and it's beautiful when it's done right. He wanted a blessing, right? And he wanted to bless, you know. So we see here in verse 6, Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Right. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. See the respect there? bowed down and kissed him. Now, this is very important if, if you know much about the Bedouins, and we'll talk a little bit more about who they are and what this is made up of, but very hospitable people. But it says, and they asked each other about their well-being. He doesn't go over and just say, hey, Dad, and kind of make his way. No, what does he do? He bows down to show honor. He gets up and he kisses his father-in-law. Do you see the character of heart here? You see the heart of this? Some of you are looking at me going, We're st- that's enough, right? No. no, I mean, I think this is God's character of heart of how he wants us to respond with honor that way. We've lost that. I think we've lost that for the generations today that, you know, when we look at those that have gray hair, you know, or those, I, I, I say gray hairs in wisdom, you know, those that may be in their 60s and 70s, not very old. You know, 80, people of 80 today and even older than that. But what do we do? We, we, well, you, thank you, old timer. You know, 60s is not old, so maybe, maybe somebody's 90. Thanks, thanks, old timer. We appreciate all your help and service. And what do we do? We just kind of put them in a, put them in a, a home. So, you know, we, we, we forget about them like that. You know, not that I'm in any way ever supporting a, a secular musician, but Billy Joel wrote a song about that. Vienna waits for you. Did you know that's what that song was about? 
See, he had traveled over as he was, you know, musician like that. He had traveled over and he went to visit his mother. And he was trying to find where his mother had relocated. And he went to see his mother over there, if I've got this account correctly. He went over to see his mother and he went over to Vienna and he was just amazed because these women, they were coming out, they were 80 years old and 70 and 80 like that. And you know, they had these beautiful areas of sidewalk that was in front of their property, a little bit closer dwellings, not these big houses like we have here, but closer sort of areas. And they took such, and I use pride in a good way here, they took such pride in their front walk. It was swept every day. They cleaned the little area in front and it was just wonderful. And he walked around and he saw that and he said, wow. He says, you know, back home, when, when you start to get, you know, an upper in age like that, people, oh, I don't need to listen to this person. I don't need to listen to that person. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, we're, that, that the older men are to teach the younger men. And the older women are to do what? To teach the younger women. You see, that, that's God's design, that that wisdom doesn't go to waste. I, I don't know about you, when my grandfather was getting up there in age, I used to love to come to him. And just sit on his lap. And I'd say, Grandpa, what was it like in World War such and such? Or, or Grandpa, can you tell me about it when you were in a concentration camp? Or, Grandpa, when you came from Italy here, and you, you know, they gave you a dollar a day in your meals, and you came from the island, you, you worked in a salt mine because you couldn't speak English and only could speak Italian. Grandpa, what were these things like? And he would just tell me, you know, for him, they were very simple stories. But I remember sitting there, and I, I mean, I could hear a pin drop. Every word I hung off of. And when grandpa would say, well, you know, this is how we used to do this. Come out here. Get, come, we're going to dig a hole. Grandpa, don't we need a big shovel? What do you think these paws are? And he said, dig a hole. We're going to plant something there. Because Italians, we had gardens. We're going to plant something like that. And I used to just watch him. You know, a very simple man. But a lot of wisdom. I, I think we've lost a lot of that today. Are you with me on that? I think we have lost, and I think there's, there's a spiritual attack on that because if we can stop that wisdom being passed down to the next generation, that honor from the, from the generation to the older generation like that, we've broke the family. We, be, we begin to break the family like that. And then, and then it, it, it seeps even further because then we, we break up the family of mother and a father. And then we're, we're watching today all these horrific, I don't know if you've been going back and looking at the statistical analysis of all these, these uh, unfortunate circumstances, you know, whether it's attack at churches or in schools. Most of these men that are doing these crimes are growing up in families without a father. Most of the gender identity issues that we're seeing in this country Pronoun issues. I don't, I'm not, you know, biologically you're born a man, but I think I'm a woman. They're growing up in many times in broken homes. Now, now I'm not, con- you know, look, I came from a broken home. My parents divorced, okay? So I want, I want to be the clear. This, there's nobody laying a trip on anybody if somebody's left you that way or if, or if you're, you know, remarried. Nobody's laying a trip on you that way. But I just want you to understand God's design for the family was one man and one woman, and his design was to, to watch that child grow up in a, a home full of love where they could see parents love one another like that. And, and many of you are sitting here, you may be single moms or single dads, and you're going, well, that's what I wanted too. But maybe there was evil in the heart, right? From the other spouse or, or whatever the situation is. That's not your fault that way, right? So nobody's condemning you. If anything, I would say praise the Lord 
that you took the child and your children and you kept raising them in a godly home because 1 Corinthians 7 says that you'll sanctify the home that way when you raise up a child like that. So praise Jesus. But, but men and women of age, if I can say it that way, how many people do you know that are growing up in homes where they don't have another father or mother that way? Wouldn't it be an awesome opportunity to come around that young person, obviously with the permission of the parent, and love on them? Teach them about Jesus. Throw a ball with them. You know, go play Barbies or whatever the girls do today. I don't know. Yeah, I had boys. I, I, you go out and you, you hit a soccer ball, you, you wrestle, you know, I don't know what the girls, but you, you're with me, right? Invest in the lives. Don't allow, don't allow the enemy to, to think that when you get a certain age, it's all about going and playing golf. Look, I'm not, con- not attacking golf either. I gotta be careful. I'm gonna get a call tomorrow. Pastor, are you saying golf's a sin? No. But you get the point. You, you laugh. I get the calls. But you, you get the point here. This is what I believe this, this, that this bringing Moses, is, you know, the Lord through the Holy Spirit is bringing this out that there is something about honor, that we're to give honor to our parents that way. Now, if you're married, you don't have to obey mom and dad that way because you're to leave and cleave. You're to leave and cleave that way. But the Bible never says you're never to not honor your mother and father for all the days of your life. For all the mothers. It's tough, isn't it, raising your children? It's tough. But it's the greatest thing, the greatest privilege God has entrusted you with. And that's, you know, the mind of a child. You're going to put something in it. You're going to feed it with something either Nickelodeon and the junk that's on there, SpongeBob and his whatever, square circle pants, I don't know what his pants are. Why are they obsessed with his pants? Whatever it is, you know, or what are you going to turn around and do? You're going to pour the word of God and turn off the TV and read the Bible. How about that? Well, I'm off on a, back to our passage here. So Moses, verse 7, met, went out to meet with his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each, each other about their well-being. There's an intimacy there. They went into the tents. Now, this is important, and it goes back to the culture. You can go over to Israel and see this today. If you go in the far area and the, you know, the dunes like that, you can go out, and you could still see the Bedouins there. And as a matter of fact, I mean, they are some of the most hospitable people. They will never turn away a stranger. I don't know if you know that about the Bedouins. Very inviting people. Very hospitable. They have tents and they still live in their tents that way. But if you walked out of there and, and you were out there and you're out and you're, you're just thirsty, you're hungry, something like that, and you, and you happen to stumble onto the Bedouins, they would invite you in if you needed shelter for the night. They'd invite you to stay in their tent. And their tents are big. I mean, they, they're not like a single tent. You know, when we think a tent, maybe we think a single double. The tents might be 20 feet long. Some of them might be five, ten feet, but, and it's beautiful when they cook. I mean, they, they, things that we've lost, I think, some of our generations, dough, bread, flatbread, they eat a lot of bread there, right? One of the things that I, w- I was amazed by when I was, wa- I was watching a, 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 I don't remember, a specific documentary on how the Bedouins were, were migrating, and one of the things was interesting about how they were taking the dough. You know, I take dough. You, you make pizza dough or bread or anything like that. Sometimes it's a little sticky, and we use flour, right, like that. But it's still a little sticky, right? I, I stick it, I get clumps of it on the counter, you know, no, whatever, no matter what you're doing, right? They take the dough just to 
sort of amazing. They take the dough like that, they put it right in the sand. First, what they do is they heat the sand up with a fire, almost like a brick oven type of thing. They, they take logs and they heat it up for almost 30 minutes, an hour, and they let it burn. And then what they do is they pick off the coals like that, and the sand is so hot, they take the bread. Now, I, I don't know how they do it. They place the bread. It looks sticky. I mean, you place it right in there. They let it sit there 20 minutes or so. They flip it. They then kind of knock off the crispness of it, hit, you know, bang it with like one of their little sticks. Not a single grain, not a single grain of sand. And this has been thousands of years that they've mastered this, that they can cook right in the sand without a pot, a pan. They just use what God's provided them with. And, and in, the, in the taste, I'm told, it tastes very kind of, not like maybe our bread's today flaky, but more like a, a, a Tough flatbread, if I could say it that way. But if you come along, they're not going to turn around and say, well, I'm sorry, I don't have enough flatbread for you. No, it would be disrespectful for them. They are very hospitable. They'll invite you in. And, and that's what we're talking about here because when we look at Jethro, in some ways, even though he was a Midianite priest, right, he was a worshiper of God, he would have been living in tents like that. And he would have been the one that was hospitable. So that's why when it says they went back into their tent, that was what, and Abraham too had tent. You know, they were very much Bedouin type culture. They would have gone back in their tents and they would have sat down and there would have been a meal. There would have been a conversation. There, they would have had intimacy. It wasn't, well, I'm glad you're well, good to see you, and I'm on my way. What it would be if we slowed down in our culture today, if we put our phone down long enough to look someone in the eyes and tell them I love you what it would be to invest in another heart that way. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Now notice with me the transparency here. It says all, not just the good, not just the, the well-being, but what else does he tell him? All the hardship. You know, Dad, I don't know what I'm doing. When I left you and I went down to the burning bush and the Lord called me and then I, he sent me back to Egypt, Dad, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm afraid. This is really hard. There's no, there's no you know, I, I watch the pillar by day. I, t I talk with the Lord. I pray. I want to be faithful. But, but Dad, I, I, there's no training for this. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I know I can relate to that. Even as a pastor, I, I sit there, Lord, what do you have? There's, there's, the, the Bible teaches and, and it gives me direction and I trust it for the leading of the congregation of the fellowship here. The God confirms everything in his word and it's led by his Holy Spirit. But there is no like how to pastor a church for dummies. You know, I need that book. There's no, I guess you might say the Lord, you know, through his Bible, through his word, he teaches, he exhorts, he corrects, he loves. This we have, an instruction manual. But when you think about it, all the hardships, the first time you say something that you didn't really mean to say the way you said it, and, and you, you watch somebody walk out of your office crying and wrecked, and you're like, I wish I could take that all back. Moses is going to be a judge of two million people. His father's going to witness this. He's going to sit there and, and listen to the, the, the complaining and all the issues. And, and he's going to try to judge rightfully or fairly, righteously, I should say, or fairly that way. 
It says that had come upon him on the way and how the Lord delivered him. There was a testimony to it for them or how he delivered the, uh, the, the Hebrews that way, right? He, there's an account to it. And he tells his dad that too. He says, I want you to know the testimony. There's good times and there are bad times. But I worship God in all of them. But I worship the Lord in all of them. We can relate to that, can't we? If you're here tonight and you're listening to this, you're at home because that's what it is to be a follower of God. Every single soul here knows what it is to have the valleys and the mountains. Then Jethro rejoiced. He didn't say, son, I'm so sorry to hear about all the bitterness and the the hardship and everything that Pharaoh said and did to you. He rejoiced because he knew God was working. He could see beyond the circumstance and he trusted God because he was a worshiper of God. He was a Midianite priest. Again, he didn't even have all the revelation that Moses did. He rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now in verse 11, this isn't, this isn't him going, Wow, I now believe. This is an affirming statement. Okay, In the Hebrew, this is an affirming statement. Now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods. This isn't a Midianite priest coming back and going, wow, now I... No, this is an affirming statement. He's saying, I'm an eyewitness or I hear through my son Moses in all ways how God has delivered you. And I have heard about it from others as well. I'm a firsthand eyewitness. I've heard these testimonies. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they, what? They behaved proudly, pride. He was above them. Now you have to remember, this is still striking because even though he's a Midianite, the culture in that time was still very pagan. Very pagan. I mean, we just talked about it. 7,800 gods the Egyptians had. That whole area surrounded is very pagan. But it was settled in Jethro's mind that morning or night. It was settled Is it settled in your mind here? You know, I ask myself that question. Lord, have you settled it? Have I settled it in my mind? And praise God, yes, I can answer yes, Lord. My God is greater than any man-made God with hands. Make your calling and election sure. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, I I have to sort of point this out because I know there's going to be somebody here thinking about, wait a minute. Why is a Midianite priest going and creating sacrifices before Moses like that? Because what hasn't been instituted yet? Aaron and the priesthood. This is before Aaron and the priesthood has been. As a matter of fact, we're going to read in chapter 19 that that God's going to bring them out and he's going to actually do what? He's going to sanctify all of them. He's going to make them holy and set apart that way as his chosen people. But this is before the priesthood of, of, of Aaron. You know, 
one of the things that I, I would like to lovingly challenge all of you here tonight, have you made comfort a God? I think most of you can look at the idolatry of this world not falling for the snare of mammon. I think most of us can say, check, I understand that. Mammon's, mammon's a, an idol. My family, my wife, my children, I, I get it. They can be idols if I put them in a position higher than the living God. I, I understand that. But how about success and comfort? Many people, I think, many Christians today, well-meaning Christians, have taken success and comfort, and they would rather be in comfort or success like that in their jobs or wherever they are, rather than being in the will of God. Or sometimes not being in comfort means that you're obviously in the will of the Lord sometimes. I'm not saying every time. Please don't. If, if someone could be in sin, obviously, ensnaring themselves and then causing that discomfort. Please understand what I'm saying here. But I think if I look at the times we're living, understanding the times, right, the big idol I see today is not just mammon, but it's comfort. It's getting out of our comfort zone, whatever that looks like, whether our comfort's our neighborhood, whether our comfort's, you know, whatever it looks like, our workplace, our, our, our neighbor, whatever it is, stepping out of that, stepping out of that routine to be more Christ-like. There's a sacrifice there, isn't there? And it's not always convenient and it's not always comfortable, is it? And, and quite honestly, many of us don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it, but we have to talk about it. What if Moses said, as he did at first, I'm not available? Now, obviously, we know God would not have left the children and the Hebrews in, in, in Goshen that way. He would have raised somebody up that was available and would, would obviously carry out, as a precision instrument, the work of God. But how much, Moses, how much would have Moses have missed out on a great opportunity to privilege, to serve God? And I just, it, I, I don't entirely know where this is coming from. I hadn't really sort of thought about it, but I, it, it's comfort today. Are we more concerned with our comfort than we are for being in the will of God? Are we more concerned with our traditions than we are for following the will of God? And that's a personal experience. Nobody can, nobody, you can't even look to your husband or your wife and go, do you think I'm comfortable? You can't do that. You can't look to your kids and say, do I feel comfortable? That's something that's between you and Jesus because Jesus gives you a personalized calling. Yes, the calling is the Great Commission, but each and every one of you that is a born-again believer in Christ, God has given you a calling on your life. Some of you, it's mommies. Some of it's, you know, whatever it looks like right now. But I think we need to talk about it. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood. Now, you know, how many of you remember Judge Wapner, the people's court, right? Right? Well, that's what we're talking about here. This is a legal term. If you're writing your Bible, underline judge and underline stood. Those are legal terms in the Hebrew. That's actually what it's connoting here. That, that, they're talking about when you go into a courtroom, all rise. You know, some of you watch that on the people's court. Judge Wapner, stand up. You know, people would stand up. All right, you can sit down. So this, we see legal terms here. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Can you imagine <laughs> two million people? Certainly not all coming to Moses on the same day, but even if what, 200,000 of them came? 100,000, 50,000? Standing in a line, Moses is just sitting there. 
All right. I mean, how would you handle that after complaint, after complaint, after complaint, right? So not to mention, what about the unfairness to all those people? Did you know that this is one of the passages that we actually get in our modern legal system to a speedy trial? The idea that you shouldn't have to delay and wait like that, that we're entitled to a speedy trial, that that if something happens, you're able to be seen by a judge within a certain period of time. In our legal system, it comes from the Bible. Many people don't know that. This is, this is where it was originated. Because as Moses is, well, I should say Jethro is going to explain it to Moses, this is not good, son. You're going to wear yourself out and the people are going to wear themselves out. And justice isn't going to prevail altogether because of that. You need to do some delegation here. Right? And he's he's going to get to that. But before, he's going to explain, hey, what is it that you're supposed to be doing as an under-shepherd? And, and if, if you feel like you have a calling on your life here and you're feeling a calling to be an under-shepherd or a pastor, pay attention. Because God's very clear. Elder, same thing. Pay attention here. So, so when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone, circle that, sit and all the people stand before me from morning to evening? Just all you're doing is hearing disputes. Why are you doing this? Verse 15, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Okay. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another. And I make known, what does it say there? The statutes of God and his laws. Has God given the ceremonial laws yet? No. Has God given even the Ten Commandments? No, we're going to see that in Exodus chapter 20. What does that mean? It's important to understand the vernacular that God's using in the Hebrew here. So we, This is talking about many times when he says, have you obeyed my commandments and statutes? This is the same idea that when you read that in the Greek, this is what it's connoting in the, in the Hebrew. When he's saying my laws, my, are you being obedient to the things God has shown you? So things that before he's even written it down on the, t- the tablets there, God had already put that in the heart of Moses as his disciple. Have you noticed that when you're a born-again believer, it's not that you didn't know right from wrong. You just began to obey right from wrong. You know what I mean? You know right from wrong. It's just we begin to, through the sanctification process, we begin to start to deny our flesh more and more and yield to the Spirit of God and to his will be done. And and it's a process. By no means has anybody here arrived and, and I just say that because I don't want anybody walking out of here condemned going, man, I just, you know, all these other Christians are so holy and I'm, I'm just missing it. Hey, we're all missing it, man. We're all working it out. But praise God, he, he continues. He says he's going to finish that work in us as we'll read in the New Testament. So Moses' law, father-in-law said to him, that thing that you do is not good. You, you need to, son, you need to judge here and, and it shouldn't just be you. I understand if the things that are heavy need to be kind of brought up to you, but initially you need, you need to figure out how you're going to do this because these people who are here with you, they surely wear themselves out. For this thing is too much for you, and you're not able to form it by yourself. One man can't do this. My micromanager's in here. Pay attention. My micromanager's in here. Pay attention to this. Verse 19, 
listen now to my voice. Notice there's a choice in here. He can listen to his dad. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God. That is the first thing if you're taking notes. You want to be an elder. You want to be an under shepherd. You want to be a pastor in your home. You want to lead your home, men and women. Men are to be pastors, but if there's no men present, the woman in the home for the children. What's the first thing you need to do? As a pastor, what's the first thing I need to do every single day? Stand before God. What is that talking about? Prayer, intercession. I need to come for every one of you before God and pray for you because I want to, I desire. Lord, we just talked about it tonight. Those that are pregnant, those that are sick, those that are hurting among you. Just this afternoon, one of the, the, Michael, I mentioned the baby that's going in for the surgery. I think in December was initially when, when the call came in that we, we needed to start praying. I'm driving home today and the Lord just brings Michael to my heart. I have no idea why, but I just start praying for the, ba- the baby and then I see back, but how's Michael doing? You know what? He's going in for a surgery tomorrow. Well, isn't that coincidental? What's the first thing I need to be available to do? I need to be praying and I'll tell you, it, it, it's supernatural, man, because I, I can wake up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, sometimes I'm laying in bed, and the Lord just floods my mind of people, names, faces, like never before. Never before have I had that. People, I mean, things that are sometimes personal and just things I'm, you know, and I'm just praying. The first thing that I'm to do, parents, for your children, pray. For your grandbabies, Pray. That's the first thing that it looks like here. He says, stand before God for the people so that you may bring your difficulties to God. We're to bring it to the Lord that way. Okay? Second thing, verse 20. And you shall teach them the statutes. You know, I, I can remember my pastor when I went before I was back. I would go in and he was counseling and discipling me before I was obviously stepped out and planted and received the word from the Lord that way. And I can remember Pastor Scott saying to me, you know, we don't microwave ministry. I love that when he would say that. He says, you know, this is, this is the crock pot, man. It's a crock pot. It may take 20 years. It's beautiful when the Lord does it and it's his timing. And I, and I received that. And I remember, you know, he would say, you, you, you see me up there on Wednesdays and Sundays. And I'm up there for an hour, you know, uh, whatever, 45 minutes. And he says, that's what people think a pastor does. They think he just stands up there and he begins just to teach the Bible. He says, but they don't understand all the, I mean, the prayer, the, the passage we're reading tonight, bathing this in prayer all week for months as you go through this because you're at least, you know, 15 chapters ahead. Because the Lord's showing you, every, you know, what, what you're to prepare. And, and then you're bathing in prayer. And, and you, you know, especially at Calvary Chapel, we teach line by line. It's expository teaching. We don't, you know, we don't create a sermon outline. God did that. We just faithfully teach the word of God. And we trust that the Holy Spirit gives application to the life of the individual. For those that come ready to hear and prepared to meet with Jesus, they receive But the second thing he says, teach them. So as a pastor, my primary responsibility is first to pray. To pray for the flock, to pray for all of you. My second responsibility is to do exactly what I'm doing right now, which is teaching. 
but that's only 25% of what I do, right? You got counseling, got everything. But, but just like you as parents, you don't just sit in front of your children, just eat what? You're cooking meals, you're picking them up, you're doing all these things, and it doesn't stop. Even when they move out, they move back, right? They go to college, they come back. It, 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 it just keeps moving and grooving, man, right? Everything's so expensive out there. People are going, ah, it's a good, it's good they're home. You get more opportunity to love on them. They need that. Make them as tender as possible, like a beautiful steak that marinates, just marinates in the juice of love, in the juice of Christ, in the love and grace of Christ that way, even if it's difficult at times. But teaching them, if you're an elder, you're, you're an un, maybe the Lord's calling you to be an under-shepherd to go out and plant, you better be praying for the people. That's a pastor's heart. Otherwise, you're a teacher. You go, go to a seminary somewhere and teach the Bible if that's what you're going to do. But you better love the people. You better be willing to lay down your life for the people. They're your life. They're what matters. That's an under-shepherd's heart. That's the heart of Moses. That's the difference between a pastor and a teacher. We read about that in the New Testament. We've got a lot of teachers out there. We know Zechariah, what, what, yeah, I think it's Zechariah chapter 12 tells us what, 11 or 12, that today, and because I, I believe we're living in the last days, that, that we'll see them scatter. When things and difficulties come up, the, the, the what, the pastors, they're going to scatter and flee because they were in it for themselves. It was never about the people. It was always about them. God warned us about that in the last days. So you're to teach them in the statutes and the laws. Parents, you can apply this. Teach your children the word of God, grandchildren the word of God that way. And show them the way in which you must walk and the work they must do. What is that? That's discipleship boot camp. That's, that's what Jesus did when he came. He went and prayed. He began to teach. He took them up to the mountain and he gave the sermon on the mount. And discipleship boot camp came out and people watched Jesus as he talked about love and demonstrated love with sinners in a way that they had never seen a religious leader, Pharisee or Sadducee, ever perform God's priestly duties. From the order of Melchizedek, right? Jesus Christ, Hebrews. That's what it looks like. They were wrecked because of that. Disciple making. Moreover, you shall select. So, so <laughs> I don't want to go too fast, but we see prayer, we see preaching or teaching, and then we're now we're going to be moving on to delegation. And why is that? Because there's something powerful about giving people the opportunity to do God's work by, by sharing, co-laboring one to another that way and delegating. Now, this isn't delegation without, you know... This is biblical delegation. This isn't somebody just saying, look, I, I'm too busy, I can't do that, and they're no longer involved in that. We, we see that, we understand that. that that's the worldly definition. Well, I've, I've given it off, I'm good now, I'm, you know. No. There's accountability and responsibility. As the under-shepherd, I'm responsible for, to the Lord, to Jesus Christ, there's a double judgment. I'm responsible for everything that goes on here. Delegated or not, right? It's not something I'm just handing off and saying, you know, good luck with that. There's an intimacy. There's a relationship. The people that serve here, many of you do. I mean, this is a very serving church. We have conversations. Sometimes there's moments where I say, hey, let the Holy Spirit lead you. 
You know, because I want you to grow in your relationship to God, to be able to hear his word. So he instructs you in what you're to do. And then we bear witness together the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's beautiful when that starts to happen. Because that's like this beautiful kind of dance with the Lord and we're all moving to the same beat, man. Right? And it's beautiful that way. It's the same thing in your homes. Nothing like when a mom and dad are on the same page. And the kiddos come along and see that. And they turn around and go, wow, I'm going to have to divide them to get my way. No. And <laughs> aren't they clever at doing that? Mom said I, dad said I. Oh, boy. We didn't have to teach that on the sandbox. They knew that, right? Right at birth. They're born with that carnal nature. So... We're going to see, moreover, you shall select from all the people. And this is what it looks like. Able men, such as what? Fear God. That's the first thing. Do they have a fear of the Lord? And we're not talking about afraid like reverential, respect, love, and honor, and fear of God that way. Men of truth, right? Hating covenants. They're not walking and saying, so... uh, What's in it for me? And don't think that doesn't happen in the church. Don't think that doesn't happen. It does. Praise God, most of you. I have not had it happen here. Praise Jesus for that. But I I know in other Calvary, you know, when you see guys come, I've heard them. Well, you know, pastor, if I do that, you know, can I be paid such and such? And and it's not like, hey, you know, you need help. It's not that situation. Making six figures but my time's worth money. Oh my. So you're covetous. It's all about what you can get out of it. He says, and place such men or place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens and let them judge the people at all times. So we see delegation, right? If you want to read more about this, look at 1 Timothy 3. We don't have time tonight, but go back devotionally. Look at 1 Timothy 3. Look at Titus chapter 2. Go back and read it. This is what it looks like. This is God's design for governance. You want to know what governance is supposed to look like in a church? This is the greatest scripture. Titus 2, 1 Timothy 3. That's why when, we've, when God's raised up elders here and you, you've seen them come up and I've laid hands and we've prayed over them, what passage do I read? 1 Timothy 3, and before we even lay hands on them, two weeks goes by, I say, bring them up. Anybody got anything against this guy? Right? Why? Because maybe there's something going on in their personal life that I'm not aware of, or, or we, but, you know, maybe, and if I say, if you bring it, bring it forward, but make sure, you know, none of this whispering. If you're going to bring it, we're going to sit down and talk about it. We're going to, your, your, your identity is not going to be hidden. There's none of that. And we go through it and we look at the character of a man's life according to the greatest scripture. Why do you think there's so many pastors today that are falling away? Adultery. I mean, it's even hit close to home. Calvary Chapel, some of you read about them. Good men and women, 20, 30 years in the faith. 30 years pastoring a church. And they fall. They ensnare themselves. God says, this is what it's to look like. 
And that's why we're to surround ourselves with men like this. That's why, as, as, as I've had men come that are elders and are on staff here, as I've surrounded myself and deaconesses, women that are deaconesses that are serving over youth ministry or different things like that, I look at this and I say, does it fit the grid of Scripture? And, and you know why I also do it? For accountability for me. Am I lining up? Because if these men are of truth and these men are of the Word of God, if I begin to veer... They're going to give me a kick in the butt. What are you doing, pastor? What, did you, what do you mean? That's not what the Bible teaches. I want to pour in my life. I want to be accountable. I don't want to end up a statistic. And I'm not a fool to think that any man can't fall. Any man can fall. And, and you go back and you look at the guys that have, you know what they did? Some of them got big, big, and you know what they did? They distanced themselves from their elders. They weren't approachable. You couldn't talk to them anymore. And they started to isolate themselves, and they were divided. And the, the enemy goes in and picks them right off because there's no accountability. So think about this for a moment. How, this is what God's, t- as a pastor here, as an under-shepherd, but what about your lives? Does God want you to be in a position where you're accountable? Yes. Do people, are people invested in your life that they can see, well, you know what? Look, I'm not a judge. I'm a fruit inspector, but I love you, and I'm starting to see some of these things that, are you okay? I notice you're spending a lot of time, uh, you're a married man, and I notice you're spending a lot of time with this young woman, and you seem to be riding alone with her in cars, and you're, you're doing things that, that I, I'm, not, I'm not insinuating that there's something going on, but I'm just wondering, is everything okay there? This doesn't look right. Or, or you're a married woman, and I notice that you're staying around after service, and I notice that you enter the church, and you're married, and your husband goes one way, and you go another, and you seem to be getting very friendly with this single man over here, and, and even after service is over, you're in the cafe with them, you're talking, and, and, and I'm, I'm just discerning through the Holy Spirit. Is everything okay in the home? That's real love. You tracking with me? That's godly, righteous, real love. There's a lot of places you can go, you can disappear into the crowd. You can walk into a church, 500, 1,000 people, and you're just one number. And nobody even knows if you're there that week. That's not God's uh, plan. Not to say, that, that's why at a lot of the larger, what do they do? They have more pastors, more assistants, people like that that can do what? Come alongside and, and home groups and things like that to do what? To make sure that people are accountable. Providing an opportunity. It's the, it's the model right here you're reading. That's why I'm sort of, I'm not trying to belabor the point, but I want you to see how important this passage is. It's the foundation It's the foundation. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So what did we also learn from here? You're teaching them how to fish. When you're disciple making, you're actually teaching them to be able to discern right from wrong. When you teach the word of God, they're going to learn how to teach the word of God, and they're going to be able to to say, well, boy, I'm, I'm missing it myself, you know. I got off here. That's why, you know, why did, you look at Luther, why did we see some of the heroes in the faith? Billy Graham, you know, why did they come up and put such an emphasis on the word of God? 
Why weren't they content with a priest somewhere with their back to the people speaking in Latin and people couldn't understand what was even happening? And they were going through the traditions all right. They were going through all that. And look, it's happened throughout all of history. It's happened throughout, all through, throughout history that way. God wants us to know our word. He wants us to know how to live our lives. He, 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 he's not looking to put a mediator between us and him. He's done away with that. He said the shroud was torn from top to bottom so man couldn't stitch it back up. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Why would that happen? Because now they're not just being corrected or exhorted. They themselves are being convicted from the living God living inside them. You ever go up to somebody and lovingly you need to correct them and say, you know, I want to be gentle here, but this, that. And they won't receive it. But I tell you what, God tugs on your heart. A lot of times, if you're a Christian anyway, you'll receive that. You'll hear that. You may go back to that brother or sister that was loving on you and say, man, I blew it, I'm sorry. Thanks for not quitting on me. Thanks for not giving me up. Thanks for not giving me up to the devil that way. He says, if you do this thing, and, and I think here's the test again, and God so commands it. In other words, you bring it before the Lord. Everything that, you know, if I come up to you and say, would you be interested in serving? Or what about this? I, I hope the next sentence out of my mouth is, you pray about it and see what God tells you. Or you confirm it in scripture. No matter what it is. Somebody could offer you a million dollars. Did God tell you to do that? I don't want to embarrass Pastor Joe. I, I, I don't want to say this to embarrass him. Um, there was a time where somebody came down in Philly and they had walked in and they had a large sum of money and they didn't, they didn't really know Pastor Joe. And, and this was passed down to me secondhand, by the way. So if I get a call tomorrow and I got to correct it next week, you know. But it was basically, he, he, this comes in with a satchel of money. Big money, too. I mean, I won't go into the exact dollar amount. Big money. Comes in with a satchel of money and says, I want to give this to the church. Pastor Joe says, um, why? Most of us would have been like, what? Hand it over, right? We're going to Sizzler, right? No. No, right? Some of you remember what Sizzlers are. No, right? Or Ponderosa, man. Free ice cream for everybody. Um, Sundays. No. But he turned around, and I shouldn't, I, forgive me, I, I keep on the point. The point is he turns around, and he says, no. He says, did the Lord show you? He says, what's the deal behind this? And the guy starts to tell the story of what had happened and everything. He says, I can't touch that money. And I won't go into all the details of the story, but it, it was not of the Lord. It was not of the Lord. He looked right at the man and says, I can't take your money. Thank you, and I, and I appreciate your heart in wanting to do this. But this is not from Jesus. And if it's not from the Lord, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Man took his money and he left. And You know what? How many men can say with godly character that they would do that? That's a man where there is no guile. That's a man that's after the Lord that way. And so when, I, when somebody says, you know, oh, the Lord, I, if it's from the Lord, I'll come back up and I'll go, thank you. You know, 
That, that's my way of saying praise Jesus. It's of the Lord that way. But we all need to do that. Every one of us need to do that. We need to run it through the grid of Scripture. Does the Lord want us to have this? And I know everybody's saying, well, sure, it's money, of course. But you put fill in the blank, you know, what, whatever it could be. It could be, end up being a distraction, you know? So Jethro says, but here, I want you to understand this. And God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure. If God commands you, God's leading, he's going to be the one that gets you through this. All things are possible with God. And all the people will also go to their places in peace. Seek the Lord. I tell that to our elders. I tell that to our deacons, to our deaconesses, teachers, everybody. I tell that. Seek the Lord every week. Even if we give you a templated lesson for the children based on the word of God, line by line, you better bathe that in prayer. God may have something totally different for you. You get in front of those babies and God turns around and says, nope, you turn right. We're going here and this is the passage. And one of the kids is just listening there and all of a sudden, you, you didn't plan that, and, and the, the kid, you know, ends up professing faith in Jesus Christ that night, and you're going, Lord, what just happened? I've seen it. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be willing to be led by the Holy Spirit, but you also got to confirm it in the Word, and it can't contradict the Word, as we talked about on Sunday. It can't contradict the Word or contradict the Word that way. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said, and what's interesting is he's going to live 40 more years or so here. It's interesting that I think that I, that plays into the, that idea of honor your mother and father, and it'll be length of days for you in this land. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Moses put his trust in these men because God told him so. God had confirmed it. And there's something very special about watching and being able to delegate to other men and seeing them walk out their faith step by step. As a pastor, something very special. When, when the Lord tells me, you know, you're, he puts on me somebody's heart, on, you know, someone, you're to, you're to take this ministry or you're to help out with this. And I, and I go to them and I say, you know, here. And then I watch them get nervous. Like I get nervous every week, every twice a week at least. And, and you're nervous about it because you don't know what you're doing. And, and you sit there and go, I don't know what I'm doing. Good. That's really good. I, I'm afraid. If you went, I got all this. I'm probably going to go, um, Lord, I might have misheard. No, but, but when they say, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm doing. And then they approach it and they're concerned and they're praying over it. And, and then they just, they sort of just let go and say, okay, God, just, they keep reading the word and they just follow him. Something so beautiful about watching that happen as an under-shepherd. Probably one of my greatest joys of watching that happen. It's a privilege. It's, it's beautiful to see. I can only imagine how God, who's the shepherd of this church, smiles on his face as he watches his people serve them with obedience and love. It's, it's beautiful. I can only imagine. So they judged the people at all times. They hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. They were handling the word of God themselves. They were able to do it. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and when he went his way to his own land. Now, it's good for Moses. It's good for the elders. It's good for the fellowship and the congregation, isn't it? It's good for everyone. And God used Jethro, and again, we won't see him in another place in Scripture here after this point. And then he departs. This is the last time we're going to hear of him. 
know, I, I've often wondered how men and women arrive on the scene for just such a special moment. They come in, they come out, and I love watching the dynamic of the body of Christ, how he raises people up, and at times they're more available to serve, and then at other times they're not as available to serve because they have things going on in the home and all these, and I just love to watch how God does that dynamic, and he, he balances it. He knows every need. He knows every desire. He knows the prayers, and we can rest well at night because of that. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be nervous. We don't have to do any of that. God has it all. Amen.